to Web3 Frontier. I'm your host, Igor Yuzo. Web3 Frontier focuses on founders and investors helping build the future of Web3, the plumbing of the new internet. I am also co-founder of Defrag, a lending protocol for NFTs. You can visit defrag.fi for more information. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Cyril Trondley, co-founder and partner at Numius, a crypto investment firm supporting founders in Web3. Cyril is also spearheading a project called NiftyMate, which is an NFT pricing oracle. We talk about the early days of Ethereum, the need for liquidity with NFT assets, and how to think about price discovery for NFTs. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can subscribe to Web3 Frontier, where we release a podcast every week. Hey guys, I'm here with uh, Cyril Trundley. Cyril, thanks for joining. Cyril and I have chatted before. Uh, he's the co-founder and partner at Numius. I'll just briefly describe Numius. It's a crypto investment firm supporting founders in the Web3 space. And they've recently released an article, which we'll go over on Mirror, that is of particular interest to the NFT space. I guess you could think of it a pricing oracle that you guys are building. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. So you want to give us a little background on uh, how you got started, what brought you into the crypto world, and... Uh, how you got to building with Numius uh, and working on this particular project? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do so. I think uh, I got started way back in 2012, 13, when a good friend of mine uh, first acquired some ASICs miners. Uh, a lot of people don't know, but the ASICs miners, the first ones you could actually purchase, were built in Ticino, Switzerland. And since I'm also from Switzerland and my buddy was in Switzerland too, he was the first guy to kind of buy them from those individuals that built it and then set it up for a couple of kind of banker friends of mm -hmm. his. And um, since he didn't really have the money, he was still a student and we were both actually in school together. He was doing the support and the maintenance for them. And in return, he got a couple of Bitcoin from that. That was 2012. So quite a hefty sum nowadays. Yeah, if he would have hold on to it, uh, it would definitely be a little bit worse. <laughs> it's one thing to more. get it, another thing to hold on, right? <laughs> yeah, correct, exactly. And he kind of introduced me to the concept of Bitcoin in the first place. And mm -hmm. we were both uh, trained system engineers by trade. Uh, so we, we like to play around with the computers. And we found it fascinating that we just could send this transaction on this decentralized layer from one person to another. And back then, the gas, or not the gas fees, but the fees on the Bitcoin blockchain were not as, as brutal as probably today and especially in Ethereum. And uh, so we did a couple of fun transactions. We were immediately hooked that we didn't need the banks because we're never really big fans of the banks back then. Rebels from day one. Yeah, I mean, if you're young and you don't really have a lot of money on a bank and you don't get any support from them, for, for you, it's just like, like a burden to deal with them. Right. Especially the friction of even just physical locations being used to, you know, consumer facing products that are on your phone and all of a sudden you got this yeah. physical object that you have to go to and visit. Especially like filling out literal forms, like in paper. That's always the word for me. I, I hate it when I need to fill out anything in paper and you have to fill out so many forms just to get a service from them. And they wanted the money that you brought to them to do something with it. And it just didn't make sense to me that we would uh, have to go through all of the hassle to kind of onboard as a customer with them. And starting from there, uh, we kind of played around with the Bitcoin network. And at some point he approached me and said, look, there's this new thing. It's called Ethereum and they're going to do a pre-sale. And I think mm -hmm. that was 
late 213 to 14 somewhere around there mm-hmm. and he said look uh, unfortunately the the pre-sale is already closed but i invested some of my bitcoin in it and i will sell you a little bit of my share uh, of the pre-sale in ethereum if you okay. want obviously already at a, a little bit higher price but i think the pre-sale was at 35 cents so did you do it so i bought a, a good sum uh, of his ether uh, but back That's then awesome. we didn't have like too, too much money. So the investment in total was not that big. And as soon as it, I think it reached $10, we thought like, okay, this is the biggest return of our lifetime. We definitely wow. need to sell a lot Wait, of it so, off. So my, the, the question I'm going to pose to you, and I don't mean to yeah. interrupt your flow here, but like you said before, one thing is to get it. The other thing is to hold on yep. to it. <laughs> I did not hold on to all of them. Okay. Because okay. we thought the multiple at $10 was already too big, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It was like an X20 or whatever. Crazy, the, the, right? Can yeah, you believe it back then? Insane. Uh, the usual salary when you're doing an apprenticeship in Switzerland is like 700 Swiss francs. So how old were you then? So 2013, that's 80 or nine, nine years ago now. So I was mm-hmm. 20 years old. I uh, just okay. got out of school before I joined the military. And uh, yeah, didn't really make a lot of money back then. So uh, mm-hmm. having it multiple of X20, uh, it was just like great. And I uh, figured, okay, let's just sell some. But at the same time, you had like these DAOs emerging. Look, the first DAO, if you remember the DAO hack. So the funds were not lost eventually. You know, they split to Ethereum Classic and Ethereum. Uh, they yep. reverted. They called it, I think, a recovery wallet. Um, yep. But I looked at the numbers. And it was 11, I believe 11 and a half thousand ethers. Basically, it was based on today's prices, roughly like over $50 billion, which is just an insane sum. So uh, anyway. I mean, you have to understand if you were early in this community, there was almost nobody who wasn't part of that DAO hack. The DAO, right. Like literally every single individual thought, thought like, this is the next big thing. I need to be a mm-hmm. part of it. So everybody was invested in this DAO. And I think it was a Friday morning when it happened in Switzerland, or it happened in the night. And then we woke up and saw just like the funds being moved around. And this all emerged from like one single idea of Slocket. So Slocket was an idea that you had a smart contract. And if you send money to that smart contract, it would, would open up a lock. That lock mm-hmm. could have a bicycle uh, behind it or it could have a diamond in a mm-hmm. like in a box behind it or it could be a door for like as the airbnb concept of today where you right. simply send money to the smart contract and it will unlock it for for that so that was the genesis of having the DAO being able to send to a smart contract and doing some kind of conditional function the first mvp that they proposed mm-hmm. to do a real life scenario and everybody loved the idea of being able to send it and the smart contract would open it. So everybody wanted to be part of it. And then when the hack happened, everybody was just like freaking out. Where's the money going? Where were you during the hack? Like when, when you were following the news? Uh, I remember that I was at a friend's place in the morning. Uh, we met up for coffee or something. And then suddenly this whole thing went down and we started texting everybody we knew in the industry. Like what's happening? What's going on? Who's doing it? Who are these guys that are stealing it back from the uh, hackers and kind of locking the ETH? Yeah. And I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe four or five weeks ago, where he had one of the main guys who reversed the DAO hack or essentially hacked the hackers that talked about it on a podcast of 
I think it was Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to that guy who was also like a, a very early employee of Slockit and uh, kind of helping build the DAO, it, it just it brings you back to that moment where everything was going like crazy and nobody knew what was happening. Yeah, that was the start of uh, kind of the germ of the idea that DAOs can hold X amount of funds and then invest it appropriately into other projects and make some kind of return and then feed it back to the DAO. And uh, I mean, you kind of see a reemergence of these DAOs and sub DAOs now with all the learnings and trials and tribulations of the past. And obviously they've emerged much bigger and better today. I didn't know that you and I had a few conversations before. I didn't know that you participated in the DAO. Yeah. I mean, it's fun that essentially for a couple of years, it was literally dead. Nobody was using the word DAO anymore. And nobody believed that DAOs would ever come back with kind of the force that you see them now. But um, it was it was great to kind of see how these proof of concepts somehow still kind of uh, stand the test of time, at least on a conceptual uh, part. But uh, Mm -hmm. on the execution, they definitely got a lot better because people learned how to deal with smart contracts much better. Right. Of course. Well, you could wear it as a uh, a badge of uh, honor. Right? <laughs> yeah, they stood the For testament sure. of time. <laughs> For sure. So, um, what did you study at uh, university? So, uh, I actually didn't study at university. So, I went straight from school as a so in a so called apprenticeship, where you mm-hmm. start working at like a larger corporation, and you have school next to it, and you're actually learning a trade by executing the trade, and only have like. Three, two days of school per week and three days mm-hmm. you go to, to any kind of real world company and you start building yeah. stuff. And I worked at Swiss Re uh, back then, so which is a pretty big reinsurance company in Switzerland. Is that how most schooling uh, is done in uh, Switzerland? I mean, you essentially have two paths, right? You either go two to path. university or mm-hmm. you go learn a trade. But a lot yeah. of people in Switzerland learn a trade. It's, it's a very popular uh, kind of way to go. If, you're, if mm-hmm. you don't want to learn and if you don't like teachers too much, you, you essentially, yeah, pretty, you, you go pretty this good way. way to, to uh, learn by doing. Yeah, and you can always go back to university after, right? So you can right. do Once the apprenticeship. Once you figure out where you want to do more of a deep dive on and get more of yeah. an expertise on. But nowadays, you, know, you have the internet, so you can pretty much learn anything on your own. I mean, that was also what brought me into the industry. It's, it's that I didn't like to be teached. So I chose a field where I thought that nobody knew more than me if I start reading and if I just start being part of it. And crypto was the perfect way to get into because there's no, there was no studies around it. There were no kind of teachers around it. And you could simply become a thought leader or become relevant in the space without having to do eight years of school or however long each kind of uh, doctorate will take you. Right. And how did you connect with like-minded individuals back in the day? Was it some kind of uh, chat groups or just emails like early on? Like how did you foster a community of people that you can share knowledge with and grow with? Yeah, I mean, very early on, I think it was 2015, 16, you kind of had to go through forums and chat groups. And Mm -hmm. you had, uh, most of the time, you didn't even know that these people might be in the same country as you. And so it was uh, fun to kind of interact with usernames, some anons, and never knowing that they might be your neighbor, your next door Mm -hmm. neighbor. And um, you started by going through them. But obviously, the school did help because you were all nerds at school. So you had your little community there and you could use the and leverage the relationships of everybody else at school to kind of get deeper into it and share ideas. 
But uh, the closest kind of community I definitely developed with uh, my buddy who went to school with me and also sold me the Ethereum, which his name is Kevin. Right now, he's uh, somewhat retired. He kept some of those ethers, huh? <laughs> kept a little bit more. Kept a little bit more. <laughs> is he working on anything related to Numius or you get unrelated now? Unrelated, we still are in very close contact. So mm -hmm. uh, he definitely knows what's going on. And I ask him from time to time on opinions and we might do stuff together. But uh, right now he's trying to kind of explore ideas on his own for now. Uh, I'm more of the kind of working 24-7 to get something off the ground kind of guy. And uh, right, right. he's more in the like, let's see what inspire me. And then uh, get slow into it. Mm -hmm. And so speaking of getting something off the ground... Uh, what are you working on now at Numius? You know, tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're working on there. Yeah, so at Numius, um, kind of, it started as a smaller project, to be honest. We had a couple of uh, people that were brought together by a friend of ours named Karsten. And he figured, mm -hmm. okay, let's do, let's just set up a prop shop for whatever we do and bring the traditional knowledge into the crypto space. To explain to the listeners a prop shop, when you describe a prop yeah. shop, is that something that trades its own capital, invests its own capital? What, what, what does that yeah. look like? Essentially, you're just trying to find strategies to accumulate and multiply the assets you already have. And the assets come only from the partners founding the company, which makes it a prop shop because you don't have mm -hmm. external capital. Right. So you had Numius, which is structured as a hedge fund, a VC, or a hybrid it was a hybrid of both, but more focused on the hedge fund first, because four of the five partners were um, kind of from the hedge fund world and had yep. their own hedge funds, uh, some of them. And so that was the initial focus. And I was kind of the crypto guy to, to connect these worlds, right? To make sure that mm -hmm. the strategies would also work in this new environment. That kind of evolved a little bit quicker than we thought. And when, when did uh, you guys start Numius? The idea was starting end of February 2021, so not even a year old. And the company was then started in like a, an active capacity somewhere in May last mm -hmm. year. So it's, it's you plus a couple guys from the hedge fund industry that have their own capital that got together, formed some kind of limited partnerships. And now you're, you're acting as a, a prop house, not, not just in terms of trading strategies, but also getting projects off the ground and seeing where, where you can get some more alpha and, and, and grow a project into something and see what works. That was certainly the idea. It kind of grew out of that very quickly because mm -hmm. uh, if we would have just done that, we would stay with maybe 10, 15 people. But right mm -hmm. now we're already somewhere close to 25 people and okay. uh, built quite an impressive team on all fronts and uh, decided to do a bit more than just like prop shop money and investing. Right. So uh, we have three verticals right now. One is market making. The other one is algorithmic trading. And the third one is the venture capital side, mm -hmm. which is primarily used to kind of help build technologies and uh, try to adapt early technologies. Like we want to be an early contributor and an early adapter for most of that to mm -hmm. also kind of leverage the other things that we do in our core business. Mm -hmm. And for the algorithmic trading side of things, are you guys just building you know, your own algorithms to run on various different exchanges? How does that work? Yeah, so on the algorithmic side, uh, we have, I think, roughly 10 quants working uh, at our company. And some of the partners I would also kind of define as quants themselves that are building the algos themselves. 
And the way you kind of do that is you're trying to find with backtesting models opportunities that have existed in the past and you believe that will still exist a little bit down the road. Uh, otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not worth building the algo. And uh, based on that, you then kind of start deploying multiple algos with different kind of speed intervals, with different kind of mm-hmm. inventory tolerances. And there's a lot of parameters that might change over time and that are dynamic as well that you can feed from various sources. And based on that, you will then have an automated algo that should run 24-7. So for Numius, that's great because you have this wealth of knowledge, backtesting models. I guess that could lead into NiftyMate, which is a a recent project that you've shared with me and recently wrote about uh, that I think has some great potential in the NFT space and is, is is needed. So uh, can you describe you know, what Nifty Mate is intended for and how people can use it? Yeah. I mean, Nifty Mate started as a project uh, because somebody approached and asked, hey, uh, would it be possible to market make NFTs? And we kind of were familiar with market making of coins and in the traditional mm-hmm. world for many things. But since you don't have like a uniform kind of structure to these NFTs. In most cases, it was a little bit of a harder challenge, but I love like taking on the challenges and I, I try to convince the other partners to, to kind of see the magic behind it as well. And um, it was actually funny how we got into the NFT space in the first place, uh, because uh, one of the partners asked me to sell it to his, his mother, which was, I think, somewhere 85 <laughs> years old. It's like, look, if you can sell her on the idea of, of NFTs and that we should get into the space. Uh, over was that, dinner, was that the litmus test? Okay. <laughs> pretty much. And um, he then said, look, if you can do that, then I'm in, then I'm all in. Whatever we do as a company, I'll also back it personally uh, with my own net worth as well. <laughs> and we'll take it from there. So what happened during that night, I kind of tried to explain it with uh, like postage stamps and collectors and uh, what else. And it all ended by, why would you do that? <laughs> She's like, she didn't care for it at all. She's like, why would you do that? This is so <laughs> stupid. Nobody cares about this. I want something real. <laughs> I want something I can touch. Uh, but w- at the same time, when she was arguing that this is all stupid and nobody should care about it, which is understandable, mm-hmm. uh, given kind of her age and the, the background that she had. Right. My buddy was already on his phone on OpenSea trying to buy his first NFTs. So in the process of trying to convince his mother, I actually convinced him. Innocent bystanders. (laughs) Correct. And uh, to kind of join this environment. And uh, it it started from there that we kind of put our heads together and tried to work out models on actually do market making on NFTs. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you need to do is to have a kind of a price estimate. If you want to kind of market make anything, you need to know what it's worth. And since you don't have a normal order book and a spread in the middle that kind of gives you a range of where it should lie, you have to come up with very innovative ways on how to do that. And that's kind of the beginning for NiftyMate, where we started to, to figure out how to price NFTs based not just on rarity, but also similarity and historic data. And there it really helped that we have like a quant background in the company. Because there's a lot of modeling involved where you try multiple models in sample testing, out of sample testing to make sure you're not calculating in your own bias when you're backtesting it. Because it's super easy to kind of fit the parameters 
when you see how accurate they get in the past. Mm -hmm. But that's only on a sample size that you choose and you look at. So you need to be very unbiased, kind of have a scientific method about it to to achieve that. And I want to cover the you know the problem that you're trying to solve along with you know so many other projects in the space, which is illiquidity in the NFT space. Uh, one of the examples that you go through in the article, which I think is great, is on the Board Ape Yacht Club, which is a very popular collection, where you talk about how often the average unique item in the collection turns over between different wallets. Yep. So I'll just read it from the article here. At the time of writing, there have been a total of around 23,000 sales for a collection that contains 10,000 assets. This means that the collection averaged only 2.3 sales per asset since its release over eight months ago. Now, I think a month has passed by since the article, but you know, the numbers still ring true today. Given that the turnover is so low, what, what do you think some of the some of the solutions may be to increase liquidity in this market, in the NFT market. Yeah, I mean, you also have to look at the asset itself, right? So for many people, it's not just something they want to buy and flip. That's why they don't really purchase it and then sell it Mm -hmm. and the turnover is not that high. For some people, it's something, an art piece that they love a lot and they don't care for another one. So they would not sell the one they have. Uh, within like with any kind of coin that is always similar you can always bet on kind of trying to get it back at a higher a lower price than you bought it before or that you sold it before and here the problem is that you might not get the same one that you chose in the first place mm-hmm. because there's a subjectivity to it uh, if you like the blue background then the blue background is what you want and you don't care if you can get a yellow one for a little bit cheaper because it's not just a financial asset to you of course yeah But the more that algorithmic traders start entering the space, and that's also true for the traditional space, is uh, if you only have algorithmic traders, you're going to have a lot of volume. If you only have retail traders and no algorithms in the middle, there's not going to be a lot lot of volume because you're going to have a standoff between where somebody's willing to sell it and where's somebody willing to buy it. And there's nothing jumping in the middle. And that standoff will just continue to grow like to the outside. So um, what we're trying to solve here is especially for usable NFTs that are might not just be focused on kind of the buy and hold collector group of things, but might be uh, used in games or might be used for some other purposes that are just right now being developed or built. Because as you see, NFTs is just a kickoff. NFTs can right. be anything down the line and they need to be priced. So by issuing that price stream, an estimate of how similar something is to previously sold items and then estimating that price, we give a somewhat of a reference for the seller and the buyer where they should buy it from. So by the virtue of us issuing that price stream, we might get the spread closer together and it might achieve more sales, but it will also give somewhat of a guiding principle for algorithmic traders to say, okay, this is under a given price estimate. So I should probably try to buy this and then kind of hold on to it. So for us, it's really give people the the knowledge to make the right decisions with this price estimate, because it will not come as a standalone kind of figure. It will come together with a so-called risk estimate that we're currently developing. So I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the choice of Arweave and choosing Arweave as a place where this information lives and people can access. You obviously want people to use 
this pricing oracle, uh, this nifty mate. Yeah. Why did you guys choose Arweave? So for us, we wanted to be as decentralized as possible with the things that we actually can do in a decentralized fashion without giving away all of the intellectual property around it. And if you think about that, if you look at our article, it was issued on Mirror, which is by mm-hmm. itself also issued as a kind of an NFT. The article is itself is one. So we wanted to have a price stream that people could judge us backwards looking. So if they're trying to see if we were always good at the price predictions, we needed something that is immutable, that people cannot claim that we changed it after the fact, or that we simply now start changing data in the past to kind of make the, the price stream more accurate. So we had only a couple of choices to, to choose from, and most of them I mean, if you go the Ethereum way and kind of uh, use an Oracle directly on-chain in Ethereum, it's way too expensive. We want to give it out as a free-to-use. And uh, that's just not economical. It would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars just to issue that price stream. So you essentially wanted something with permanence without the cost of gas? Well, with some cost of gas, but not the exorbitant cost of gas that Ethereum currently has. Have you guys considered some layer two solutions? Yeah, uh, we definitely looked at layer two solutions, but uh, at the moment when we started developing it, they were not as practical to us because mm-hmm. we didn't have enough experience using them. And the Arweave ecosystem, when it was kind of brought to us by somebody from our team, uh, was like, okay, here's a Python library. We tested it within, I think it was took us 20 minutes to issue the first price stream after we had the model built. And uh, we said, okay, that's easy enough and we can always change it. But there's already an immutable ledger now and it's kind of a proof of concept anyways. Right, right. They just kind of uh, a, a trail, say, hey, we have this uh, pricing engine, uh, which is going to feed our weave and that's going to store that data permanently. We're going to look back at it and we're going to see a transactional history that it has some permanence, a decentralized validity, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. And going forward, uh, there's no kind of limitation to where we can put it on because for us, it's simply a model that runs and we Mm -hmm. can push it to whichever chain that we feel like it needs to be pushed to. It is always a difficult balance, right? To build technology that requires high transactional volume, uh, whether it's feeding a price oracle and getting data sets that are large in size and running an algorithm on that data set and iterating over that data set multiple times before coming yep. up with a price prediction. So how do you think about balancing those two, you know, building with the centralization in mind while at the same time, you know, being practical in your approach? I mean, right now we have the luxury of not having too much of a turnover on many of these assets. As we said before, it's 2.3 times a year uh, in right. the last eight months for Bored Apes, which is probably the most liquid uh, at the time or even the most used by turnover at the time. Mm-hmm. So this gives us the luxury that we don't have to compute every minute or every second Mm -hmm. a new price because most of them, uh, the times there hasn't been a sale and the price model only changes when there has been a sale. But going forward, there's definitely going to be a trade-off where people are going to have one centralized kind of price stream that will be issued every second or Mm -hmm. even every millisecond. And then there's going to be like a decentralized one that will be issued every hour or every 10 minutes, whatever the number might be. But that's always going to be for free. So there's a little bit of a trade-off if people are willing to pay for it because we cannot always front the cost of that Mm -hmm. for forever. 
But if we've come up with some kind of concept on how to make this a more community-run and community-based kind of system, then there's going to be ways on how to achieve that for sure. Have you guys considered a DAO? I mean, uh, I try to hold back on that because it's not really a DAO since it doesn't really kind of need to manage treasuries as well, mm -hmm. right? In my mind, the DAO at the moment is probably something that manages also some of the assets. And right, right now for me, it would be... Yeah, you could call it the DAO consortium of the actual users of the price stream that could feed back into the decision making of this pricing oracle. Because we know long term that we don't want to have like a, a centralized price stream. It's just not mm -hmm. something that people are willing to accept down the line. So we mm -hmm. want to decentralize this as soon as possible. Over time, right. Mm -hmm. But kind of to make the proof of concept work, it's much easier to talk to a couple of people and do it ourselves until we right. have some solid structure to kind of go from. But the DAO is possible. Uh, I'm not yeah. saying no. I, I would probably <laughs> just not call it the DAO. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's uh, once again, another balance between uh, driving something, a project forward and making decisions quickly in the beginning and kind of setting up the framework and the rails prior to releasing it to the community and in, in, in a DAO, in some kind of DAO format. So there are use cases for NFTs now, whether they're PFPs, uh, collectibles, you know, digital art, and right now a big, a big space that... Uh, it's getting a lot of interest is P2E, play to earn. Uh, what are some use cases that you see now? Um, what are some use cases that you see in the future that maybe other people are not paying close attention to? I would say that NFTs give a perfect kind of foundation for anybody to put IP rights on something, right? Because essentially, since everybody knows, you can copy and paste an NFT, just the mm -hmm. image of it but you're not going to own the intellectual property behind it. And you're not going to be the true owner of something until you actually have the record on chain that you bought this NFT or you created and minted this NFT. So this can be applied to many other industries. When you think about the naming rights for things or the branding rights for things where you could essentially just sell a brand on an NFT for use and then mm -hmm. for reuse on another platform in a game, you could have uh, IP rights for characters like the DC and the Marvel universes that could license out uh, Spider-Man to some kind of decentralized gaming platforms and for skins and so on. And they could always get a cut from whenever mm -hmm. they sold something from it. So I think this digital ownership, these IP rights that can be applied to any NFT, these mm -hmm. are the things that I see now emerging, especially uh, in the US, uh, if you're talking entertainment industry that a lot of people maybe not have on their radar yet, but right. will definitely come and they will, they will be very, very interesting. So you touched on two important points. You touched on uh, composability and interoperability, right? You have an asset that has, that's its own entity, has its own uh, IP rights that uh, is cross-compatible across different outlets uh, for distribution. So, so that's incredibly interesting and powerful. And also because you can build in veto rights. If you don't want your character to be used in any kind of other form or shape that might be not on brand for whatever you're doing, then mm -hmm. you can just veto that and say, look, I never like gave this free for licensing in this kind of fashion. So there, there's a, so much that can be built into these smart contracts that uh, people definitely need to, to think about and need to be aware that these things can happen and will happen not too distant in the future. And do you see 
an interoperability, or rather, how do you see the interoperability of DeFi and NFTs? You know, we we saw, you know, kind of DeFi go from, you know, I think it was like you know, one billion TVL in like late 2018 or 2019 to now it's I forget the numbers, but it's over 100 billion and TVL. Mm-hmm. What do you think a catalyst might be in the NFT space that, that utilizes some learnings from what happened with DeFi? I think you need to be very careful when you're talking about TVL because it's a very misleading number in DeFi and people love to throw it around as like a project has success. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at actually the underlying coins that are deposited as TVL, they're usually accounted more than once. So you could have something that is deposited within uh, some kind of uh, aggregator network as Curve be shown as TVL on many other platforms that they deploy it to. Right. We need to make sure that we dig a little bit deeper there and not just follow these trend numbers uh, that are thrown out there. But at the same time, you see that all of these idle assets suddenly have started to to move and to earn interest and to generate yield for the mm-hmm. holders of it. And I think this trend will em- kind of emerge much more also on the DeFi and then the NFT space in the future. Because once you saw that your collateral or your NFT or whatever currency that you currently hold is actually being used and generates interest without the risk of losing it, Mm-hmm. Why would you ever go back to the traditional kind of fiat world where the, right. the assets just cost you? I mean, in Switzerland, you have negative interest rates. That means right. if you put money on the bank account, they will actually charge you for it, which is ridiculous mm-hmm. in the first place. So I, I can see when kind of the next wave happens of retail users using these amazing new platforms such as crypto.com, FTX, and all of the guys that are pushing for retail adoption, uh, also the Coinbase, not to forget that you will see people fascinated by being able to kind of use the assets to actually earn money with them. And I yeah. think this one will be a catalyst. I think the world is definitely starved for yield. I mean, fixed income rates in the United States for junk bonds are only a few hundred basis points above the treasury yield. Uh, that's yeah. never been seen before. So you take the worst of credit quality for bonds and in return, uh, you're not getting much yield on it. It's definitely the world is starved for the yield. And you mentioned some, some of the people that are tackling this on the retail side, whether it's you know, Gemini with, you know, they, have, they have products where you could get 6 to 8% yield, which is far better than your fixed income. So the more they can explain the narrative and where they're generating the yield from and what the stability looks like over the next you know, 5, 10 years, that can definitely siphon away. Uh, retail and institutional investors to utilize DeFi and, and uh, all these um, opportunities. And I think we have to also look at what's going to happen, I think, in February or March. I mean, you have, I think uh, the numbers are almost 50% of the Super Bowl commercials are going to be crypto companies. So you're going to see a massive push. And you also see it now with the arenas that are being kind of the naming rights are being bought by FTX and crypto.com. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be more of that. And there's going to be a lot of retail flow coming in after the Super Bowl in the US. And these people, they like to look at cool things, right? So you want to belong to a club and you like to look at cool things. So I think it's very probable that people will buy an NFT with that. If, if it's easy enough on their platform that they're right. using, they might want to buy something like that to belong to a club 
because uh, like the digital ownership is definitely growing. For sure. Yeah. I was thinking about this recently and I was thinking about, okay, like why do people move from project to project, from asset to asset, from coin to coin, from NFTs? You know, there's a lot of like yield chasing and APY chasing, but at the same time, there's also kind of like attention chasing, you know, which project is captivating a community's attention. And that means, you know, how fun it is, how fun it is, what kind of actions can you take within the community? So that has been generally, even Web2, it's always been, you know, which company can captivate the attention of the youth and, you know, for a long period of time. And that's really what you're seeing in these bubbles of communities within the NFT space is that they're, they're captivating the attention of communities that live online. Uh, I think a lot of these, the successful NFT projects, I think their prime kind of focus and their prime skill is actually the gamification of things, right? You need to enter this and do that to be part of this and might get a free of this. And this gamification aspect is how you attract kind of the, let's say, the users that that like to spend their time online, that Mm want to be engaged by you, that want to feel like they belong to a club. Right. You throw tokenomics in there and you reward them for those actions. And you've got something very powerful. I mean, if you look at the like the board game Monopoly, there's also kind of somewhat of tokenomics in there that are just like real world applications as well, mm-hmm. where you buy that. You can now purchase a hotel on it and now you're earning more money when people step on it. And this gamification just happens naturally in the DeFi world as well. And I think the NFT world is the, the thing that actually makes it visually pleasing for people to do the same. Yeah, which probably DeFi itself not always does because right. the visual aspects right. might be missing. Right. But that's great. Yeah, if you start combining those two things, I think then you really got something. So before I ask this next question, how do you think about separating the hype from what is actually being built currently, and where do you think we are in the kind of life cycle of the bear and bull market of the crypto world? Yeah, I think uh, separating the technology from the actual hype is always a good idea. So whoever builds something that is not just a normal NFT, but actually has some more stuff behind it is always like a little bit higher in my book. Mm -hmm. Naming one particular might be Altered State Machine. Uh, It's a project from a good friend of mine in New Zealand, which essentially gives NFTs brains and lets the NFT character as 3D characters play games against each other. And you need to train them through a machine learning model process. Mm-hmm. So you might train them to be uh, like a, a forward in soccer, and then they might beat another team of other AIs. And you suddenly see a new proof of concept for something, meaning kind of artificial intelligence in games with NFT characters that are 3D okay. models and not just a picture. So now you're giving out 3D models and not just like one picture. So now you really got something for the user to play with because anybody today that has like a a laptop and can download a couple of software pieces can create amazing visual art with a 3D rendering of an object Mm -hmm. and an avatar. So they did something cool with the Fluff project where they put these little bunnies in weird scenes like as DJs or like on the beach. And they just created so much user-generated content and uh, unlocked so many artist opportunities that uh, I was really impressed on how they did that. So everybody who built something on top of just a picture, uh, but actually does more, like the, the Jadu hoverboards as well, 
Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really cool. And that's really engaging for people to use. Right. So it's kind of pushing the, the, the limits of what we can render from a graphic standpoint, uh, combining it with the appropriate kind of gamification and tokenomics to make it interesting. It needs to be fun for sure. Yeah. Otherwise people will lose interest. Yeah. Where do you see the NFT world in next five to 10 years in, in terms of direction? You know, is it more play to earn? Is it more tokenizing real world assets like real estate? What is your thesis and where are you guys focused as a fund and, and builders? I think it's, it's about replication of the real world with some added features on top. Right? If you have the real world and you have New York or you have some iconic cities that people can enter, the first people will just rebuild that and make it like, give you some added features. Like you mm-hmm. can suddenly fly through New York and you're going to have maybe virtual, uh, virtual glasses on that you can now feel like Superman. And you might kind of have a Superman outfit to be able to do that in the city. And suddenly DC gets a cut from them NFTing Superman costumes and giving them to characters and limiting it to maybe 50 characters. So only there's only going to be 50 Supermans. So suddenly it's very desirable to be a Superman and to have that NFT. So I see really the replication of the real world with some added features that everybody else already dreams of. Like everybody wants to fly or at least I do. <laughs> and, <laughs> I've always uh, wanted to fly growing up. Yeah, exactly. So I think you capture the imagination through that. And I see the NFT space moving into that. So kind of metaverses, but replicating the real world with some kind of added features that make it more fun and making childhood dreams come true. So have you ever tried the Oculus? Yeah. So even though it is owned Meta or Facebook, it's kind of, of a ready player one scenario where you have really high engagement and a, and a feeling of, of being in a, a real, almost a real world, which is a virtual world. Yeah. I'm sure you've thought about this intersection plenty of times, virtual reality and the NFT space. Are you seeing any projects working on uh, anything in that space right now? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of projects working in this space and trying to make uh, the composability high for these metaverses. Because the main issue that you're going to have is if your metaverse is not composable, it's just going to be one of many. So making all the characters playable in your metaverse will be one of the core kind of uh, challenges to tackle as a developer. Composable and interoperable, right? So right now, like an NFT should be able to live multi-chain. And if you create a VR game on the Oculus and it has no connection to all these chains, then it's kind of rendered useless from, from a standpoint of like tokenomics and value uh, for, for the rest of the community. Yeah. And also just like traceability of ownership, right? Yeah. Because in right. all of the other things, you know, there's going to be hundreds or millions of the same guys as you. But if you paid, uh, let's say, $200 for the Superman costume or to be Superman and to have the skill set, you want to make sure that you're only one of 200 and it can actually right. use it. It's unique and it's yours. Yeah. And so I, I see a lot of work being done in this aspect, like mm-hmm. people just trying to build something that's very composable. Lastly, I'll ask you, are there any resources that you would recommend to our listeners? And that could include, you know, just catching up on crypto news, builder tools, on-chain metrics, or, you know, simply a, a person to follow on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I always love the kind of the threats of uh, croissant ETH. So it's like the, what is it in English, a croissant? Uh, a croissant? <laughs> yeah, a croissant, yeah. Croissant. <laughs> it's, a, 
It's like George Bush said, uh, it's very unfortunate that the French don't have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> so it's croissant, at croissant dot, uh, ETH. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's also Rect HQ, so from Julian Boudeloup, which is always a great resource for DeFi. Mm-hmm. I've recently stumbled upon a new decentralized kind of Twitter slash Reddit, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's called GM.xyz. Okay. And um, uh, the guys are doing they great They don't ban work. people there? No, no. They have to not make it completely decentralized for now, but it will go there. And they're right now building also kind of an application for your mobile phone. And it's very mm-hmm. interoperable with NFTs. So you can have a verified NFT as your avatar and as your background picture, and you can show off your collection and so on. And the guys building it, there's two brothers, uh, they're doing an amazing work. So uh, shout out to GM.xyz. Well, uh, I'll definitely check them out. They have fun merch as well. <laughs> and, and where can people find you? Is it just your Twitter handle? Yeah, I mean, uh, you can go on numius.xyz and you'll find all of the profiles there. Or you can go on Twitter at CYBDifferent. Don't ask me why I have this username. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your name. <laughs> <laughs> it's the test of time. I think I created the account in 2012. <laughs> so don't hold me to it. My, uh, my Hotmail address was also like snowboarding for life or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, listen, yeah. uh, thank you so much for your time today. A lot of interesting uh, notes that have come of this. I'll make sure to link them. And... Really excited to see what you guys build at Numius. Uh, please obviously stay in touch and hopefully um, everything works out with your shoulder. Hopefully it heals. Yeah. And you and I will be in touch. Yeah, for sure. Thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really fun chat. 